Sociologically, Australia has changed. God has brought the world to this land uh, that they would reach out for him and find him. Actually, does you good to think through the theological significance of human migration, that in one sense, all history is salvation history. I don't mean to blur the uniqueness of biblical revelation. But God, you know, you need to work out why did God bring all those refugees fleeing poverty in Sudan to Australia, all those wealthy Cantonese from Hong Kong, or those South Americans who have escaped from oppressive dictatorships, or the Pacific Islanders who are looking for work, or the Middle Easterners who are escaping persecution. Because behind Menzies' decision in the cabinet rooms of Canberra in the 50s, when uh, they were really hunting for skilled labour and someone had built a snowy mountain scheme and looking for some factory fodder, God was overruling their decisions to shift populations with one explicit purpose, that they would reach out for him and find him. Uh, Acts 17. We'll go to that for a sec. I just want to set the framework, because if you don't get the framework right, you tend not to feel compelled to actually be a, a multicultural preacher. So our church's vision and mission statement reflects this. God in, the, oh, let me read it to you. God in his sovereign control of history has brought the nations into our backyard. We refuse to let this wonderful opportunity slip through our hands. God desires all, to be, all people to be saved, and so do we. And when we see people from many cultures represented in our congregations, we understand that this is indeed a taste of heaven itself. Our multicultural church reminds us that God has indeed kept his promises to Abraham. And there's a real tight connection between who we are, where we are, and how we're connected with biblical history. We now live in a multicultural, multi-faith world. Unless, of course, you live in the Blue Mountains in Sydney, where there's, you know, it's, it's spot the non-skip. <laughs> uh, Australia has changed since 19, what, 90, 1975 in the Whitlam era. I mean, he's left us now, um, Gulf Whitlam. Uh, but uh, he really got rid of the white Australian policy and formally introduced... And it's really transferred. I think Paul Keating was right. There are two Australias, one before Whitlam and one after. And so at a secular level, he has changed the landscape of our country when he brought in officially the multicultural policy, rather than just an assimilationist policy, a real celebration of diversity within our community. The tragedy is that uh, the churches tend to get left behind, and you know the cliche that the most racially segregated time in the week is... Sunday morning, <laughs> where Philos go to Filipino churches, Samoans go to Samoan churches, Aussies go to Aussie churches, and we're all trying to tell the world that we're all one in Christ. And um, eventually the world's going to wake up and say, are you guys for real? Because I think this is going to come back to haunt us. So I particularly fear the day when someone's going to observe the fact that everywhere else in our community there is multi-ethnic gatherings except the church of God where Christ was supposed to bring, uh, abolish the wall of hostility. And it's such a powerful apologetic, can I say. Now, I understand it is impossible to be all things to all men at the same time. The moment you have two people in front of you, you can't be all things to all people because this person is different from that. And when you go to gathering, your time, your location, your style, uh, your form of liturgy, everything either attracts or repels. It's just the reality of it. I want to concede that. But it is, it is possibly far more inclusive than we presently are. And one of the ways to do that is to be a preacher that has a real eye on preaching to a broad range of cultures. And even if they're not in your assembly, and I think this is where Keller was very helpful for me, uh, when Tim Keller speaks about when you preach, even if you don't have non-Christians, preachers though they are there, so that your people will have confidence in knowing that if I brought my Italian, my Thai family member, that they will know that this word is for them, 
and not cringe in the process. So that's the first point I want to make. I think you need to be committed to a multi-ethnic vision for the church if you want to be a multicultural preacher. That's my first point. Any comments on that? Okay. Second thing I want to say is, and we'll read Acts 17 now, because um, the real emphasis nowadays is to keep highlighting the differences amongst and between cultures and the gap, the cultural gaps. And let me say, there are real significant, not the least, is language. But I remember my former principal, former Archbishop Petty Jensen, in a throwaway line, made a point that what we share in common across cultures is far more profound than what is different. So uh, to do that, let me go to Acts 17, which the sermon is classically known as the most contextualised expression of, presentation of the gospel, and it is. So let's read it. Acts 17, <clears throat> you know the context. We'll pick it up at verse 22 if you want to look at it. Acts 17, verse 22. I'm reading from the ESV. So as we go through it, just have an eye to... The things that unites cultures and have in your mind how Paul contextualizes the gospel. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples built made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us, each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even uh, some of your own prophets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance of God over sorry, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Some you know I'll keep reading the, now, when, uh, now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Just wondering, is this microphone on? Is that, is that calling a bit of echo? That, that needs to be shut down. Just a suggestion, I know nothing about sound. Okay, now, like we said, that's normally a classic, sorry, this is normally a classic expression of how to contextualise the gospel. Any examples of how that's expressed? Just little things observed. That you think, wow, he's really knowing how to speak to this particular people group. Because here is a man from you know, one worldview encountering people who worship other gods and other cultures. He's in a multi, multicultural, multi-ethnic, pluralistic world, just like our own, isn't he? It, it's so our world now, this, in a way that perhaps it wasn't 50 years ago in Australia. 
So just to break the monologue here, any contextual expressions that you pick up there? Starts where they're at, at a point of known to unknown. Yes, exactly right. They obviously had their each way bet there, didn't they? It was lovely. Right, poets, there's two, Aratus and Epimini, I never know how to pronounce that name, that's right. Which, by the way, Paul does in Crete, uh, in Titus 1, about the Cretans. Um, yeah, in fact, it's a prayer to Zeus, <laughs> which makes it even more ironic. Um, and he's pulling that piece of truth, because in the end, all truth is God's truth, eh? Any other aspects you notice that uh, highlight the contextualised nature in which he's preaching the gospel? What doesn't he do as, as when he's preaching amongst the Jews in the synagogue and say Acts 14? Where doesn't he start? Doesn't start yet. Yeah, doesn't start with the covenant of Abraham. Just completely bypasses and goes to creation and idolatry. Yeah. Yeah, very good. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, the infotainment centre, yeah. And don't you love Luke's little comment, you know, people who love to you know, enjoy hearing new ideas, you know, so it's a little, he has those little barbs along the way, which I said, don't be cynical, but occasionally the Bible does prove me wrong. Um, and, and he's inclusive in his language. We ought not think, rather than you ought not think. Um, but in the end, uh, uh, all of that is ultimately to present a gospel. That's really quite. He's very inclusive with the ultimate goal of presenting an exclusive gospel. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Now let's pick up on. Here he is. The different cultures. How does he wrap a circle around everyone? Just start thinking through now. Where does what things do he and them now share in common? The platform upon which he preaches the gospel. Creation, uh, that's the first point, that all humans have created and depended on. So it's creation and God's providential care of all people after that, yeah. Um, and the, when he quotes uh, one of the philosophers, in him we live and move and have our being. And as a result, we make space for God. No, sorry, God makes space for us. We don't make space for God in his critique on idolatry. Uh, that because um, idolatry always puts humans at the uh, God at the mercy of humans, not humans at the mercy of God. So here he is, clearly and implicitly, you know, without explicitly doing it, it's really a critique on nationalism and cultural pride. Because you know, whether you're you come from Bangladesh or you know American, you know, standing on an aircraft carrier, you're no less or more dependent on this God who was created. There's a circle drawn. Everyone has been created by God, Athenians and Jews, and everyone is equally dependent on him. What's the other thing that unites every human, logically? Seeking God. Seeking God, yes. That comes a little bit later, actually. Just go back before that. In terms of origins. Yeah, okay. Clearly believes in historic Adam. <laughs> and, uh, hey, cousins, we're all related. Like... I preached in South Africa about two months ago, and I and I and you know I was preaching on this text, and I said, uh, "What you know that, that that Adam is the granddaddy of the African as he is as much the t Zulu." Now, when you got blacks and whites in a country that's been riddled with co racial conflict, it says we're all related, and all the core elements we have far more in common, and. Um, and again, it exposes the folly of racism, even though he's not doing that here, of course. And uh, so, all created by the one God, sustained by the one God, we all come from the one man. Um, any, anything else? 
In terms of um, God's rule over nations, cultures, people groups, Yes, uh, you're, you're picking up on the fact that uh, buried in here is an assumption that we're all... Uh, the, yeah. That, that's a good point, actually. I hadn't picked that up, but I think it's a valid point to say. Yeah, thank you. You can see here, and he, I think he's alluding to something in Deuteronomy. He, God is determining the spread, the, the times allocated for nations. Uh, let me read it to you. So pick it up at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having, that is, determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling. Okay, so, so here are the nations of the world, and he's sovereignly determining kind of the location of people groups. And you can easily slip it by, but you see, he's the one who's determining the rise of Rome, the fall of Athens. And what's the purpose for God's involvement sovereignly in human movements, migrations, the rise and fall of civilizations? What's God's goal in that? In your own language. Yeah. It's, it's a, is, it, is it a salvation purpose? That they should seek God and in the hope that they might... It's kind of like the word for groping, that they will feel their way toward him and find him. So that's, that, for us in Sydney, my particular church, that's really a precious thing. It theologizes my human migration, that in all the pain, even in all the sin that provoked the migration, God has one single purpose, which, by the way, doesn't deny the sinful context in which a dictatorship or persecutions might have provoked the movement but the reality is God's movement God's control sovereign control in uh, cultures and locations is so they would reach out for him and find him that's the goal but whatever else you want to say about it that's the reason why God has brought a series of migrations pre-war post-war etc etc all are given a one command and that is to repent God commands all people, sorry, before that, God will give an, they will, everyone will have to give an account to the one whom God has appointed. So there's a one judge we'll all stand before. God has issued one command to everyone. Uh, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Uh, do not be intimidated to bring Christ to bear on all cultures. Um, there is no exceptions to this, whether you're Scottish Presbyterian, African animist, Middle Eastern Muslim, Chinese Buddhist or Australian atheist. All personality types, uh, God commands all people everywhere. You don't need to earn the right to evangelize. All generations, God has no grandchildren. Everyone needs to make a decision. And every gener- every generation needs to make a decision. And the and the base of that decision is based on the resurrection, which is deemed to be sufficient evidence for everyone. Right. So God stands above every culture. Bottom line. And, and, you know, I misread one of the questions earlier uh, this morning about how do you get over, you know, white... How was it put? How do you get over just being a white person in a culture? I've forgotten how the the person rephrased it afterwards. But, you know, white man's guilt. (laughs) And you're kind of tentative. (laughs) Don't be tentative. Like, there's a sense where, as a preacher of God's word, 
People are not victims of their culture. Like That's the point I want to make. You've got to get that clear in your head. Black, white, doesn't matter, Asian, African, South American, you share far more in common than your differences. And you need to, you know, I'm not saying kind of browbeat, but what I'm saying is you need to know there is no us and them. There's just us. And as you preach, that circle has to constantly be drawn from which you then say what needs to be said from the text. People are not victims of their culture. They're influenced and shaped by it, but the resurrection of Jesus, as far as the Apostle Paul is concerned, is deemed to be sufficient evidence for everyone to repent, whether it's a Vietnamese grandmother um, or the Italian who lives next to you. So that's the second point I want to make. And I particularly, I particularly say it to you because I'm speaking to probably more Anglo-Saxons than anyone, and you need to get that very clear. Unless you know that you'll, you'll, you'll be far more tentative than you should be when preaching to a multi-ethnic congregation. Now, I'm not saying speak the truth in love, have the kind of nuance that Paul has. I just want to make sure you know that you've been authorised to have those words come from your mouth. God commands all people everywhere to repent in whatever phrasing you want to use. Okay, any point on any comments on that? Feel free to disagree too if you want to get a discussion going. For people to repent? Yep. yep. The ESV kind of says it in line. It's probably a bit more accurate too than I think the NIV. And this he has given assurance to all. Uh, that is, the assurance that you will stand before the one judge, I think, and have to give him by raising him, that same judge, from the dead. Sorry, by raising Christ from the dead. So, and I think he's picking up way back in Luke 1. One, you know, where he's writing these things that you may be assured it's that same theme. But here, the assurance, I think, is grounded that what he's saying, based on the fact that God raised Christ from the dead, that resurrection is deemed sufficient evidence for the basis upon which God can command all people everywhere to repent. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But I always thought that resurrection is something that would come. It's not something that everybody would agree on. Sure. Which is why some of them actually kind of say we can't really understand this, or some of them just feel some rejected. Certainly, that's the thing that provokes the most uh, reaction. There's no two ways about that. But not everyone would have probably taken a monotheistic view anyway when he first starts. I'm not saying what they might have actually accepted. I'm just saying he's actually, either explicitly or implicitly, with whatever agenda he's consciously working on, he's drawing a circle around every culture and saying that every, there's one God from one man. God is determining for all cultures that uh, they would reach out for him and find him. They'll stand before the one judge. God issues one command. And finally, the base of that is deemed sufficient evidence for an Athenian, even of the various philosophical representations in this group. A Jew or a Califampian, yeah. Even though you're right, that particular doctrine will, will probably provoke the greatest laughter. Yeah, we'll touch on that as well, absolutely, yeah, yeah.
exactly right. My point here is simpler. I just kind of want to make sure you, you know that uh, it, I think it's very easy to get intimidated by cultures that are very different from you. And you think, how can this person ever become a Christian? You know what I mean? And you just think the world, cultural worlds, are so far that you actually forget the authority of the word and the, the unity that you share in common across cultures. So there is no us and them. There's just us. Okay, the next point. So in saying that, of course, we can't trivialise the fact that uh, you are dealing with people of your own culture and, uh, and I, don't want to, I don't want you in any way to trivialise the differences amongst cultures. So let me just say a couple of other things, a couple of kind of definitional things. What do we mean by culture? Um, Leslie Newbigin, I think, there's lots of definitions around. It's as good as anyone. He says, culture is the sum total of ways of living built up by a group of human beings and transmitted from one generation to another. Culture is the sum total of ways of living built up by a group of human beings and transmitted from one generation to another. I like that because it doesn't, it, it's broad enough to include both the positive and negative elements within that culture. Uh, it's mindful that it's not just a one time, it's one generation after another that's received and passed on. No person lives apart from culture. Every culture has its own ways of doing things. Culture covers everything from particularly language, as we were reminded, to theology, food, to music, dance, to how you marry, when you marry, defines what it means to be a male and a female, a husband and a wife, a mother and a father. It defines the nature of the roles. It shapes what you think is right and wrong. Um, what you think is funny, what you think is cool. <laughs> uh, it covers everything from how you breastfeed to how you worship your God, whether you eat rice or rice bubbles for breakfast. Um, most importantly, dominant cultures tend not to see themselves as cultural. It's, it's a natural blind spot. It's like I always say, it's like bad breath, you're the last to know. <laughs> it's like an accent, you can't hear your own accent. You're always blindsided. Uh, I was reading a book by Gary McIntosh, who reckons... For a church to be on mission, 60% of the people need to go on short-term mission. And he said one of the reasons is it actually helps them reflect on their own culture when they've actually jumped cultures and are able to see what's biblical and what's cultural in their own world. It's a very hard process. Look, you don't know how Australian you are and what that means. I'll give you an example. Uh, which one will I give you? Um, so we've got some Samoans. And here's Samoa, influenced by a century of missionary work and there was a 22-year-old mother. She had a baby in hands. I didn't know she was pregnant. I just caught her in the sort of the foyer. I, uh, I said, Helen, uh, I didn't know you had a baby. She said, oh, actually, actually, it's my cousin. Oh, yeah, right. She said, yeah, it's now mine. I said, what do you mean? And, you know, all in the culture, they're happy to sort of hand over uh, their child to their cousin, their auntie, and they will be the functional parent. Now, you hear that, right? Oh, man, it jars you, doesn't it? It doesn't jar them. And, I, and I've been sniffing around trying to see, what did the missionaries say on this? Because they've, you know, they, they've been Christianized for over a century, but somehow that issue never seemed to be an issue. So I read, you know how, da is it David who spoke on the homogeneous? Maybe he said, don't judge a culture too quickly. Oh, but I've had to reserve so much because it seems so wrong to me. What do you mean you're handing over your kid to your cousin or whatever? And uh, so I'm still on a journey in exploring that issue, but, but my, I'm restraining myself for laying judgment until I've thought enough about it before I come through with a final verdict. 
does seem weird. Um, but it just shows you, I'm, uh, you know, whereas we're more than happy to have single parents who you know, have been abandoned and you know, or we'll, we'll abort our kids, but we're going to condemn them. You know, it's like very easy to sort of point the figure there when, uh, when, when, when you know, Western culture has not been particularly good in rearing children. So the first thing is, is that um, uh, just get a grasp of what we mean by culture. I'll talk more about that later, but John Frame now distinguishes culture from creation. And this is a little definition that I think is helpful. Creation is what God makes. Culture is what we make, what humans make. Um, sort of post uh, you know, um, Genesis 1.26. Uh, more fully, creation is what God makes by himself and culture is what he makes through us. The third thing is distinguishing culture from world. Um, classic mistake is to reduce culture to the category of world. And by world, I mean the way, for example, John mostly uses the word cosmos, which is kind of organised hostility against humanity. It's a negative word. You know, God's love in John 3.16 is so big because humans are so bad, <laughs> not because the world is a big place. Um, you know, Jesus says, the world does not hate you, it hates me. Uh, 1 John 2, we're told, do not love the world or anything in it. Very dangerous category to just think that's actually culture. Uh, culture is um, that category that reflects both the goodness of creation and the fall of man. It's got two aspects to it. And that leads to the, third, uh, the next idea, which is, if that's the case, it both reflects the goodness of creation and common grace and is also the result of the fall, then um, uh, the classic way of kind of viewing culture, your attitude to culture ought to be captured by those big three R's. There are aspects of culture as you're preaching that you're rejecting. There's aspects of culture that you're engaging with that need to be received. And there's aspects of culture that need to be redeemed. Um, what would be an example of a culture, cultural aspect that needs to be, say, received with thanksgiving? Some aspect of culture that, you know, you know that when you're going to evangelise this culture, you won't have to worry about calling on them to repent in that area. What they eat, for example, that's right, exactly right. That's part of God's good creation to be received with thanksgiving. That's, a, that's an obvious one. Maybe eating too much of something might be, um, uh, might be you know, an aspect of how you manage it, but essentially in and of itself, it's just part of the cultural expression. You're not going to talk about hash cookies, are you? Because <laughs> I suppose when you come to think of it, I guess that this... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In and of itself, it's not wrong, though, is it? Nothing wrong to eat a whale. It's only because there's not many of them now that we, it becomes now more of a moral issue. Yeah. That, that's where, you see, your, our culture now has made that a moral ethic. You know, in and of itself, eating whales... Are, there's actually nothing wrong with eating whales at all. The problem is we've just exhausted the species and now we're not managing this world properly under him. You know? A whale doesn't have any more moral value uh, or a dolphin, say, than uh, you know, a heifer. Uh, or a black and white cow, you know. It's just that we've, in our culture now, one becomes a sin. That's, that's our Western kind of culture that's actually determined. And in that case, it actually may, we, we've got a bias towards certain, you know, mammals and certain type of mammals that find themselves in certain Hollywood movies, like Orca. Um, 
Although we never feel sorry for the fish that they eat. You know, we always say we're selective in our kind of, our, our moral values. Somehow they're, they're fine as long as they kill, you know, somehow they're our best friends. I find uh, Acts 28 verse 1 where it refers to the Maltese as showing unusual kindness. I think that's worth noting as uh, <laughs> that aspect, you know, when you're evangelising. No, okay, I'm being silly. Uh, parts of culture need to be rejected and... Um, so you see that in Titus 1, Paul quotes one of the same poets in Acts 17. In fact, in the same poem, when he says, you know, Cretans are always lies, evil brutes and lazy gluttons. Now, of course, notice how he does it. He actually is quoting a Cretan poet to make a critique on the culture. He doesn't go direct himself. He's not, he's not that stupid. But he's observed aspects in the culture that, that the role of the elder is to actually engage in dealing with as he ministers the word. And parts of culture needs to be redeemed. So uh, music is a beautiful thing, but if you're praising a, a, a pagan god, you'll need to repent of that. The music category in the singing is excellent. The, the content of that will change. So, look, there are, it's not the ideal, you know, it's not perhaps the perfect category, but they are helpful categories. The thing to do is try to do it on your own culture first, and we tend not to think culture. So you take something like feminism. Feminism is a cultural expression and development of post-enlightenment thinking in the Western world. Treat it as a cultural category and you approach it slightly differently than if you kind of receive it as this kind of, you know, as someone said to me the other day, I said, when you think of feminism, what do you think of? She said, justice. And I said, well, I wouldn't automatically go to that. I think there are just elements within it, but I think, say, with feminism, there are bits that I want to receive and praise God for, there are bits I want to redeem, and there are things I want to reject, i.e. the treatment of unborn, uh, for example. So once you start to think, actually, this... And it has to be that way, because, remember, culture is that which we make, and because we're fallen image bearers, those three categories are always going to operate. And it's a healthy way of, I think, approaching our own and other cultures. Okay, so I think intuitively, I've probably when I pre- preach in a multicultural context, that you know, there's so much to say about preaching that I'm not saying, of course, I'm just with an eye to culture. I probably, and I think I said in the interview, there are three things I probably have in mind. One is almost helping the congregation to stand back from their own culture, celebrate theirs and others' diversity, re- receive what is good with thanksgiving, and importantly, allow people to feel comfortable in their own cultural skin. Like, that's part of that journey, I think. You know, that's why the culture is not equivalent to world as a category. So all the time I'm getting to stand back from their culture, I think that's what we're always constantly trying to do. Celebrate cultural diversity, receive with thanksgiving that which is good, and, and allow people to feel appropriately comfortable in their own cultural skin, not to deny their humanity. I don't know if this is true, but you know in Revelation 7 where you've got the round the throne from every nation, language and tribe. You think, I wonder if that, you know, if I die a Cook Island, I'm going to be raised. My resurrected body will reflect my Cook Islandness or my ethnicity. I don't know whether, but I wonder. I wonder if your ethnicity is actually redeemed. In the re- That's purely speculative and I wouldn't spend more than two seconds thinking about it. Secondly... Two, our main goal is in preaching is that... Oh, by the way, I never, have never felt more comfortable in a church than at MBM because of the diversity of cultures. And not because there were other Maltese. It wasn't that. I felt like I shared experiences in more areas. I had more assumptions with the people I fellowship with in my church than I have in previous churches, which tended to be Anglo-Saxon. 
Uh, and remember, some of my best friends are Anglo-Saxon within my church, if I could put it that way. But, but I, I feel like I'm more at home there because of the diversity and the shared similarities. And I think that's partly too, I'm a second generation. So when I'm talking to a Chinese second generation, we come from very different worlds, but we share certain similarities. We live in the overlap of cultures. There's a, there's a lot more similarities too. So um, I think that's part of the joy of being in a multi-ethnic church. You, you almost get to enjoy who you are and recognise it for what it is. But second point in this, our main goal in preaching is that we can stand back from our culture and see the sins and idols of our culture. Our core identity is in Christ, not culture, and that Christ must stand over culture. That's got to be the constant overriding instruction. God commands all people everywhere, all nations, all classes, subcultures, personality types. No matter what experience you've had, God commands all people everywhere to repent. Christ over culture. And thirdly, Eddie, my goal is to help people sit loose with their culture and sit tight with Jesus. I love that phrase. That sort of helps me. I've used that phrase a number of times more recently. We sit tight with Jesus. We sit loose with our culture. So we can exhibit that missional flexibility to become all things to all men so that by all possible means we may save some. We don't get too precious about our preferences that uh, having people one for Jesus allows me to deny my cultural preferences for the sake of others. That's a very hard thing to teach. Usually missionaries have got to go away for six months and you know, be trained in it. You know, so we all go back to our default position. So there are three things I want to say what I intuitively do when I preach in, a multicultural, in, in my preaching uh, at church. I think there are three strong elements that I've, I've identified on reflection, probably more intuitively. Any questions on them three? Where is that voice coming from? Oh, yes. Rowan, do you think I did that? Yeah. Sort of more intuitively, I, I, uh, yeah. I usually mocking my own culture would be the best way I tend to do it. The one advantage of being Maltese Australian is that no one is intimidated by Maltese culture. There's 400,000 in a place that's uh, you know 18 kilometres long. That's the sort of the. the the bit of mud that flits, you know, falls off the ball of Sicily, which is the ball that Italy's kicking. You know, like that's how. So it's not an intimidating culture. It, it, I, I have access into cultural discussions, I think, because of my insignificance of the of the my parents' heritage. Um, but yeah, yeah, I do, yeah. Okay, let's move on. Um, so failure to see your own your own cultural categories or your own identity influenced by your own culture. So failure to reflect uh, can be a problem. Um, it, it's easy, you know, we look at Americans and we also have, the, you know, it's typical American, you know. They all want to vote Republican and don't see the, you know, have you ever seen that book, you know, why the right are wrong and the left don't get it? You know, the, in America, if you're a Christian, it's very hard not to be a Republican. It's just, if it's not pushed up from the front, the, the, and, and I understand for some good reasons in you know, view, view of abortion, but there's so many kind of inconsistencies. You think, why can't they see it? <laughs> you, know, you look back and think, man, they're blindsided. What we can't see is where we're blindsided. The fact that I said earlier, feminism is a cultural category. If I, this is a, 
you know, this is not an egalitarian group probably for most, I'm assuming. It's Geneva Push. I said that in most other places. I get eaten up. I had a massive stand-up argument with three of my close friends last week on this very issue because I was gnawing at something that's so deeply entrenched that saying, guys, it's, it's a cultural product. There's things of it that are absolutely right, that are just, the protection of women, the, you know, the powerless, blah, blah, blah. But there are actually parts of it that need to be critiqued as well. It comes from image bearers who have fallen. And we just, it's very hard to stand back from your own culture. So constantly doing that is an excellent thing. Andrew Wall said, the beauty of Christianity in terms of Christians and culture and the attitude to culture is that, uh, as Andrew Wall said, is that no one owns a Christian faith. Culturally, no one owns it. It's an international gospel. It's been given birth from Judaism, but it was always international. And Paul's work in particular, as he engaged with cultures, reminded us of it. Um, and Christianity at its best celebrates diversity while at the same time critiquing it. Uh, and that's why Christianity never looks the same. You know, there is no McDonald's brand for Christianity. You know, I mean, certain denominations try to do that, sort of smooth over the differences. But your cultural identity, um, but the beauty of Christianity now is picked up by, I think, David who spoke, was that, um, you know, we have a faith that allows God to speak in every language. It is a translatable truth. Propositions are able to be articulated and cross cultures and cross language groups. And the result of that, of course, is, is that, and I quote another here, Christianity is a religion of over 2,000 different language, language groups in the world. More people pray and worship in more languages than in another religion in the world, than any other religion in the world. Isn't that amazing? God is praised in over 2,000 languages because of the nature of biblical revelation that is propositional, that can cross cultures. <clears throat> so we need to be part of that journey of making sure that the gospel we preach is actually speaking to all the cultures that are there before us and in the communities that we want represented in our church. So just now a string of things I want to say on preaching to a multi in a multicultural context. One is, of course, you know, clarity and communication. Uh, we're commanded to preach with understanding. You know, 1 Corinthians 14 argument, the reason why... Uh, sorry, the point there is that there can be no understanding unless there's edification. The reason why tongues are forbidden in the assembly when there's no interpretation is because it makes no sense. And understanding is a baseline necessity for edification. Now, the problem is, like I said, you can't be all things to all men at the same time. The limits of one preacher to be all things is expressed in the fact that I can only speak one language and I barely do that properly. And then I'm speaking in a context of people who aren't always high in literacy. So how do we solve some of those problems? Well, making sure, and we've touched on this today as well, that there are, that there are in fact, groups where, I say mother tongue, but heart language is the better phrase, uh, that the heart language is the language in which the word of God is being taught to people, whether, um, whether it's Arabic or Thai or whatever. People need to hear the word of God in their heart language. There, there are lots of differences in idioms that don't get passed over. And so you need to constantly look for that person. If it's one-on-one -on -one in translation, uh, an ethnic-specific group where they can actually get to wrestle with the word of God in the categories that they're... You know, they need to hear Jesus if they're Italian as an Italian and with other Italians at some point in their week. Uh, 
Secondly, we, we put on, uh, we have, actually haven't done this yet, but uh, a new staff member has drawn our attention to it. We really need plain English services because there is a desire to want to master English as well, and rightly so because you know, they're, they're citizens of this land and their future and their children's future, and they want to communicate with their kids well. So they want to improve their English, and understanding the language of your new country empowers you as a migrant. They never apologise for that. Um, we're actually helping them empower them in our ESL classes. So we're teaching them Christ there, but we realise uh, we actually need a service that probably will strip down the language. I'm filled with colloquialisms, right? Uh, you know, I, I just, they come out of my mouth and, you know, the poor Mandarin Chinese, I feel so sorry. And I go too fast and I, I'm a bad, look, really, I'm a bad multicultural preacher, really, in some ways. My, my, my speed in which I speak. But I've got people who are jumping on me all the time now to slow up. But uh, the way we've sold some of that is translation booths. So we have tr- three translation booths. So when I preach, the interpreter for the Arab uh, Nazri or, or the interpreter for the uh, Chinese or the Tamils will say, Ray's trying to be funny now, but not very funny. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, at least they, they, they engage in laughing at me, which is part of the process. So translation booths, uh, into, you know, and uh, plain English services uh, in small groups and in one-on-one discipleship, home mother mother tongue or heart language. Uh, and uh, the other thing that new staff members trying to introduce is an oral method of uh, storytelling. Um, so uh, I mean, he's an ex-Thai missionary himself. So interestingly, in our newish class, he does this. He actually tells the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector twice. Just read. He doesn't actually read it out. He tells the story and then tells the story again. And I thought, what I thought is this? this is weird. And then, and then he gets them to go around and ask uh, what, they, what they find interesting or surprising about the story. And, um, and before you know it, they really exegeted that parable from Luke 18. Um, So uh, managing the language issue is a big one. I'll tell you, getting those interpreters up, it was a, it, uh, how long, uh, Rowan, was, well, we were trying to get it while you were with us, and man, it took us years to get the, the sacrum and then to find the right interpreters. So what I'm saying is, it's not a, how can I put it, unless you have a vision for multi-ethnic ministry, you won't put a lot of energy into that because it was a pain in the neck to get going, you know. What sort, where to locate them, get the interpreters, who was going to manage it. You know, you've got so much on your plate. But I knew if we wanted to include other ethnic groups with other languages, we needed to have them gathered with us and hearing the word at the same time rather than them going off as though they were you know, like the kids into another group where they could have the Bible taught separately. Uh, another thing, of course, is clarity. Um, every doctor, you've got to, this is another assumption that I think we sometimes don't get when we do cross-cultural work. Every biblical truth can be communicated across cultures. So the dumbing down of the message is not the way to do it. Being clear is critical. But you've got to assume that if God has revealed it, it can be, under, it can be communicated and understood. I often say, predestination is not a hard doctrine. Emotionally, it jars you, uh, perhaps, but it's the easiest doctrine to understand. People say, it's such a hard doctrine. I said, no, it's, not. it's actually a very easy one. The fact that you're offended by it tells you you understand it. Um, J.C. Ryle, he was one of the few Anglicans who actually could minister to working class. It's not been our strong point. And, uh, and he did an outstanding job in, uh, in, as a bishop of Liverpool. 
And uh, if you ever get the chance, his little article on simplicity in preaching, uh, a very good article on clarity. When you're ready, you think, gee, nothing's changed. And he's paying out on all the people who are preaching in such a complicated way that people don't, aren't understanding. And he says, his opening point, for one thing I ask all my readers to remember that to attain simplicity in preaching is of the utmost importance to every minister who wishes to be useful to souls. Isn't that lovely? And so clarity. Unless you are simple in your sermons, you will never be understood. Unless you are, uh, uh, underst- are understood, you can be of no good to those who hear you. Such an obvious. That's why I think he preached to 14-year-olds, a uh, 14-year-old every Thursday, was it? Because he, fig- he pictured, and you know, I think that's how the good news, when it was translated, was pitched for a 14-year-old from memory. Because um, if you can get a 14-year-old, you can probably get a 35-year-old. <clears throat> so preaching with clarity becomes critical. Uh, preaching on culture... Um, as a sermon series is helpful, but also just being aware of, you know, I want to be a five, I don't think I am now, but I want to be a five continent preacher uh, because I, I've got the five continents, the continents represented in my community. Preaching multicultural means you're constantly being inclusive on God's terms. Mindful of, you're always mindful that you're speaking to a, it's not just the audience in front of you, it's the audience of the people they're in a relationship with. That's how you need to see it. I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to the, the tens of hundreds of people who are in your network that includes all ethnic. Now we all know, are aware of the preacher who preaches to the one demographic, you know, the, the male, sports loving, middle class, tertiary trained, Anglo-Saxon, marked with a bit of sarcasm. I mean, Sometimes I think that's the target group for some preachers. They neglect women. They neglect those who don't like sport in their illustrations. They neglect working class. Pretty much they neglect the rest of the world. And so I'm trying to be a five-continent preacher, not just a a two-dimensional preacher. And, you know, you do that in all sorts of ways. And sometimes it's very simple. It's like referencing wider demographics than you normally might. So uh, training yourself to think global. Now, of course, if you've got two or three dominant ethnic groups in your suburb, you may want to hone in on them. But um, since literally we've got lots of Africans, Indians, Asians, South Americans, like it's really the western suburbs of Sydney is very, very global and international. So when you're doing your normal kind of um, uh, scope kind of description, so you may say the proposition, something is true, regardless of where you live and when you live. And then you might say something like, whether you live in Chile in the 19th century, Beijing in the 17th century, Portugal in the 13th century, Egypt in the 8th century, Jerusalem in the 2nd century, or Cape Town in the 21st century. Like, hopefully you're going to hit bang, bang, bang. At some points, the person in the congregation will come from somewhere in that vicinity and feel like you are including them in that story. And that, it's, it feels kind of silly in its simplicity, but... Those little things help. When I did Acts 17, I, when I did the whole migration of movement, I actually spent about five minutes, I did some research, and just plotted the, the kind of migrations that have happened in, you know, in, in the last hundred years in Australia. And it, it just was so helpful for everyone to be caught up in telling their story. And it went back to the indigenous, the original custodians of this land. Um, I want to hear, I want the stories of the people in the congregation to come out from my mouth at some point. I, I want people identified in terms of their culture. So 
sorry, that's another point. I want, I want to identify them. So when I'm telling a story, like I did the other day, I talked about a Sudanese... Um, uh, I said, that, uh, the point was this. A Sudanese brother, it was on prayer, do not be anxious about anything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, Philippians 4. And I said, there was a Sudanese brother who years ago said to me, Ray, I, my landlord is not fixing the taps and the TV and the... Um, and the, the door handles, you know, and he said, I've asked him several times. And then he said, can you please pray that he will come and fix them? And I said, and I said do you want me to go and talk to him? That was my first instinct, you know, the advocacy, the great saviour. And he looked at me as if I was an idiot and said, no, I want you to pray that he will come and fix the... And, and my Western mindset was so exposed. I'm a doer, you know. And of course, advocacy is very important. Let me not, you know... But he just said, no, no, I want you to pray. And sure enough, we prayed. And within the week, the guy came and fixed everything. <laughs> but notice, my introduction was he was a Sudanese brother. And I made implicitly him the hero of that story. And I was humble. And I was implicitly speaking about a Western materialist culture that goes to doctors for solutions and not God. You know? And it's not an either or, but you get the point of embedded in that little example are a whole set of values that I'm trying to communicate. <clears throat> Be aware of your biases. And, uh, and I, I tend to tell, I lean on you know, either the Aussie, the Middle Eastern, the Mediterranean, European, Hispanic and Pacific Islanders. But I tend to neglect Asians and Africans. And I, I, I'm just not sure why, especially the Africans in our midst. So you just kind of be aware who's included, who's not. And you need sometimes people to to sort of speak to you on that. Uh, be inclusive by being respectful. And um, uh, so I, I think how we speak about others is very important. Um, false teachers, you know, 2 Timothy 2, with gentleness and respect. So even the way... I'll, so I'll refer to my Muslim friends or my Catholic friends. That will be a language. I won't use the word brother, but I will speak about friends. I want, I want them to know that I'm not adversarial at the point of somehow not liking a person, and it gets heard harshly. Uh, so that, that if my friend has a Muslim, he'll know that if I speak about Islam, I'll do it with a respectful manner. But in saying that, I'll then... Uh, uh, sorry, just say take Islam, for example... Little comments like, I'll speak of Islam as, I'll find something about even, even another world religion that, that I can affirm. So I will say something like, Islam is probably, apart from Judaism, is probably the, religion, world, probably the one world religion that is closest to Christianity. I'll actually make that statement because it's monotheistic. I believe you know, its worldview actually shares a lot of similarities. Uh, it has a, a day of judgment, has resurrection. The, the categories are, well, let's face it, Islam's a Christian cult, but I won't say that. Um, uh, but really, it, it, I can pinpoint, I draw a circle around our similarities upon which I then highlight the differences because I want to be heard. Whereas you come out shooting from the hip and all of a sudden I'm in defensive mode. I need to know that you're on my side and then we speak about where the differences lay. So I want the, the language to be respectful. I notice that you are religious people, says Paul. He draws the circle of inclusion upon which he builds his offensive statement that God commands all people everywhere on the basis of a resurrected man who will stand as your judge. Okay, what else do we want to say? Contextualizing the gospel, we've touched on that. 
you understand the Acts 17 wasn't a two-minute sermon. It was probably much longer. <laughs> Although my congregation keeps telling me, I'm pretty sure it's only two minutes, Ray, and uh, you should preach the same. <laughs> um, you really, what are you doing? You're, you're looking for points with the culture. You're looking for points of connection and points of dissonance between them and the, the world and the word. You're taking the word into the world and seeing, uh, and, and really not wanting to assume anything. You're trying to expose where this culture needs to repent and where it, needs to, where it can be affirmed. Um, it was much easier, you know, I remember in the 90s, we, we, our target group was second generation Mediterranean Middle Easterners. And we had so, it was so easy to preach because it was just shared assumptions all the way. Um, even though they come from a different background, I knew exactly where they were coming from because I came from there. I didn't have to think too hard. As one Assyrian man said, Ray, we had all the pieces, we just couldn't put it together. Heaven, hell, Jesus on the cross, you know. And really what they meant was they didn't get justification by faith alone. They didn't get the authority of the Bible and they didn't get substitutionary atonement. Once you deal with each of those things, you pretty much help put the framework for them together because coming from a Christian Christianized worldview, they basically had a lot of the categories. I mean, you had to deal with things like purgatory, but, but it was so much easier to actually preach. And then with um, Hindus and Buddhists coming to the congregation, whoa, it just became so much harder. So when you start to talk about works righteousness, the classic religious, Christian religious forms of that were really just one expression of it. All of a sudden, reincarnation and karma becomes a, became a form of works righteousness. So you, you, all of a sudden, you know, I, I needed to introduce the whole notion of why karma and grace were at odds with each other. And so it's basically kind of speaking to a larger audience with, with a broader set of worldviews and bring them in under the worldview of the Bible. Um, other things we want to talk about. Know the struggles of your culture. And, uh, and racism is one classic one. Actually, someone very close to me was told, uh, uh, an Aussie, was told by, a, uh, by an Indian person that they would never go out with, with this person because uh, they were white. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in terms of preferences, you know. That, that, and she was so offended. I said, you imagine being black and knowing that every time you go for a job that's going to work against you. I said, you've got a little taste of it now. They live with that. So that capacity to empathise with the cultural pain. Dealing with mixed marriage, we've got heaps of mixed marriages. It's a common issue. And people are in relation. It's becoming more and more a wonderful celebration of how you know, people are coming together. But it has its own uniqueness. You know? My wife and I, we're very different culturally and we're closer than a lot of them. Um, you know, just learning how in you know, so many cultures, um, uh, the place of parents and you know, blood... It's thicker than water, and um, that that uh, that you know. I, I've got Assyrians. They'll say to me that I I love my kids more than my wife, and they're not even cringing about it. And and I've got a good relationship with you, and I go to town on them because I've got that good relationship. And uh, and I say you're sinning when you do that. I said your wife actually has to be your first priority, even over you. So that reordering. Um, but uh, the grief of migration and asylum seeking. So what the point here is. Uh, know the struggles of, of the cultures in your congregation. The impact, you know, with our Sudanese, you know, and, and a lot of the refugees, they've been, they've been raped. A lot of the women have been raped and molested. Um, there's a lot of mental health issues. There, there's a lot of pain that I, have, I really have no depth of understanding on. And uh, that needs to be connected with at some point. 
the grief of that group seeing their kids become Australian and, and, and going wild, you know, in the freedoms that and that and the dissonance between the way they were brought up and the way Western culture encourages children to be brought up is very painful. Um, be aware of the cost of commitment uh, for many of the cultures, uh, persecution in particular. Um, you know, the first Maltese who became a Christian, she went home and told her dad and he punched her in the face. Um, she's now the spouse of a man who just got inducted in a parish in Sydney, which is lovely, 23 years later. Um, but, uh, but I still remember Joe's, re, you know, the shock that her father would react, react so host, with such hostility. There's a Sri Lankan girl who uh, got converted not that long ago, 23-year-old. When she became a Christian, her family ransacked her room, forbid her to go to uh, church. So for her, her church is the website. She says, your website, Ray, is, is my church because I, I, I can't, I'm not allowed to sort of bring any Christian connections into my family world. <clears throat> celebrating the strengths of cultures. You know, Pacific Islanders, this is another point, I just move on and I ramble. Celebrating the strengths of cultures and uh, Pacific Islanders are so beautiful in their collectivist mindset with strong families. Philos are ten- tenaciously hard workers. Italians know how to have a good time. Irish, they've got you too. You know, there's always something to celebrate <laughs> in every culture. Maybe they're not the last album, but you know, they've got you too. But what that means is you celebrate, you can also speak to the sins of a culture a lot easier too. Like the workaholism of, of fellows, um, the fact that islanders uh, tend not to connect well with uh, churches. Their, their family is their church and they need to know that the kingdom of God is bigger than their family. So they'll often come as a group and they often leave as a group. Um, enjoying the human cultural banter, I think, is lovely. Assyrians and Tamils both think that Adam spoke their language in the garden and they're serious. I'm a joker. They actually are serious. I don't know where the Tamils come from with their eye, but they will present an argument for why Adam spoke Tamil in the Garden of Eden. Well, I'm going to stir them to the hilt on that one. Um, it's lovely to put a face to the, his- the historical biblical story. So... So, for example, to actually get a Jew and an Arab, Archie was there when we did. We, we, got a, we were running for a number of years, Walks for Christ, and uh, just to lasso that group uh, and preach the gospel to them. I don't think it was overly successful, but nevertheless, I remember where we did it. It was actually your sermon, Arch, by the way, Ephesians. So we had a Jew and an Arab reading two parts of that passage. That's beautiful. Or to get an Assyrian to read Jonah, um, given that you know that they were the ones he he didn't want converted. Or to have an Egyptian read Exodus. Yeah, lovely touches. Just being aware of the worldview of culture. So I'll give you sort of some formal definitions. The difference, say, between an individualistic culture and a collectivist culture. And again, I should have had these on the screen. An individualistic culture, it's Western culture, the concept of the self is defined as separate and independent from the group. The interests of the individual are given priority. The independence and autonomy of the individual is emphasised. The pursuit and fulfilment of individual goals are expected. You can just hear how you were brought up and all of that, can't you? Behaviour is explained in terms of individual decisions and attributes. By the way, I think this is just a secular definition, but it rings true. Accumulation of individual wealth and possession is the norm. 
leadership, competitiveness, aggression, achievement are normal. That's individualistic cultures. Collectivist cultures, the concept of the self is defined only in relation to the group. The interests of the group are given priority. The interdependence, solidarity and loyalty of people within the group are emphasised. The pursuit of, a group, of, group, of the group's happiness and harmony is expected and politeness is highly valued. Behaviour is explained in terms of adherence to group norms. Collective, collective ownership of resources is the norm and group conformity and obligation and sense of duty are normal. I'll give you a little example. I said to a Samoan lady, Alyssa, I said, how many in your church, Alyssa? She said, Samoan. Oh, about 34 families. <laughs> who counts like that? I've never met a minister who counts like that. You see what that description? I gave you a lot of fancy words. That said it in a sentence. We would never count. I mean, I'm sure there's places where we do count families, but that is not the way we think. We count. We'll think adults and kids, because adults give money. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we think individually as our prime category, and they think group. That's why the Samoans come as a group, and they leave as a group. And getting them to be enmeshed in the life of the church can be so hard. And getting them, and then that breeds nominalism. So you can see from one end, it's so many beautiful aspects to it that need to be celebrated. They so shame us in our neglect of our natural family community. But on the other hand, you know, it's very easy to have nominalism because you, you do need to make an individual decision for Jesus. Um, you know, you need to be aware when you, when you hit the um, fifth commandment or its application in the New Testament, you know, on the one side, you've got the individualistic cultures that never honour their, you know, that deem honouring parents, you know, talking to them on the phone three times a year. <laughs> Admittedly, that's a disengage. But I know a pastor in Sydney who I meet with regularly. His mum lives around the corner. He sees her every couple of months. I said, are you crazy or what? Now, I know I'm Maltese, but I think I've got the Bible on my side. I don't think you can honour your parents that much when they're that close and you're saying, if I don't speak to my mother three times a week and visit her once a week, I'm dead meat. Uh, <laughs> now, I'm not saying someone else has to be like that, but you know, at some point you've got to give expression to um, your relationship with your parents. So that's one end. And then the other end is um, collectivist cultures that, you know, where, or in certain Asian cultures where parent and, and your parents are so their authority is over-heightened, that you know, they'll never do ministry because of it, and you know, they need to hear the restraint on that by the words of Jesus, unless you love me more than your mother or father, you're not worthy of me. So as you're preaching it, you've got this group who you need to be aware of, and that group. Um, and so often, and, and you know, I won't keep talking, I'll just move on. Okay, start with your, uh, um, be aware of the sins of cultures, um, and start with your own. Jesus counter every culture. <laughs> Okay, uh, the gospel is countercultural right across the board. Uh, we run against the tide of every culture. Now, remember, not every aspect of culture, as I said earlier. Don't end up with a domesticated Jesus. Don't be afraid to let God's word speak into the sins of cultures. Um, for example, you know, shame cultures where, uh, you know, where they, where, where they'll say, "Yeah, I'll do that," or, or you know, or uh, and then not do it because they can't say no to you face to face. 
And you think, oh, well, that's a cultural thing. No, no, no. Let your yes be yes and no, no, and everything else comes from the evil one. That cultural aspect of, of that particular people group needs to actually come under the lordship of Christ. That's why don't go, don't go dancing around that issue. You need to speak. Now, you may do it through interviews. You, you, you may, this is usually a good thing. As Paul quotes uh, the, the poet in Crete uh, in Titus 1 to put the boot into the Cretans about you know, evil brutes, lazy gluttons, so quote the people from that group saying, you know, that's usually the best way of doing it. Let someone from that culture, let them, their, their recognition of that sinful characteristic be the thing that you quote as you come through. It's actually easy for them to hear for one of their own kind of doing it. You can do that via an interview, you can do it in a quote. I was talking to such and such and they were saying, in, you know, amongst the Chinese, it's the natural tendency. And they, and they learned, uh, you know, Louise realised that if she lives under the Lordship of Christ, that she needs to, when she says something, she has to mean it because we will be judged by every word that proceeds out of our mouth. So what you've done is you've let someone from that culture actually speak to that issue. So know the sins of the culture, um, but equally be aware of your own. Um, so, for example, um, and start there. You know, Australian, Anglo-Australians are known for being aggressively casual. That's the great criticism of um, Africans, of missionaries in Africa. You know that thing that David said, we want, we're the most egalitarian culture in the world. We flatten everyone. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't knock down tall poppies for no reason. And uh, we think it's commendable. Well, it's not really. We, we, we fail to appreciate order in relationship and the respect that's due. And sure, I tell my Filipino people, you know, you don't have to call me Pastor Ray. Yes, Pastor Ray, I know that. <laughs> and then I realised I was wrong in trying to get them to change, you know. Um, I'm not saying I want others to do it. I gave them the freedom not to, but that's how they express their respect towards me and preserve the distinctions in our, in our relationship. So we need to know our own sins and our aggressively casual uh, manner is itself, um, can be disrespectful. Okay, oh, we're coming close to the end. No, be aware of the idols of our culture. Tim Keller's been, I think, helpful in terms of understanding the categories, you know, turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. What are the three things he says? Um, his point is always uh, we've got to name and expose the idols of our culture and, and then uh, bring them under the lordship of Christ. You know, it's anything that you serve instead of Christ. It's what you look to to save you apart from Christ. Uh, and it's that which you, you gained your first love before Christ. Uh, serve, save, love. Those three very helpful categories. Time's running out, so I won't say that, I won't say that, and I won't say that. And I think, can I just say, in the manner in which you preach... Oh, hang on, that looked interesting. There's so many things to say. Uh, I, I reckon use the diversity of our cultures to kind of... Sorry, the diversity of cultures help us to read the Bible better, can I say? Um, uh, so, for example, at ESL, they, the ladies couldn't work out why Martha wasn't the hero of the story. You know Martha? They just couldn't get it. She should have been the hero. Now, I think we know, but almost hearing it through their eyes, I got to feel what Jesus was doing with greater depth. That's what Kenneth Bailey stuff does, I think, with the parables in Luke, doesn't he? He, he basically had them read in Middle Eastern context and then felt where they jarred and it kind of helped you appreciate the issues there. And sometimes it's actually just interesting. You know, Jephthah, you know when he says, you know, let the first person who comes out of my house be killed, you know, in light of, 
And you think, what an odd thing to, why would you vow, who do you think is going to come out of the house but one of your kids? But not necessarily my mum's house back in Malta. They had the animals stored in the house, in the room next to the door. And so it was not, not uncommon to have actually animals in your house. And that was quite likely the, the goat or the cow was likely to come out of the front. front. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting in helping you appreciate uh, cultural differences. Uh, okay, preaching in a personal way. You know, the days of looking at your notes, and I still do it, and, um, you know, uh, your body language when you preach to a multi, multicultural congregation becomes very important. You know, it, it really doesn't look like you mean it if you're not giving eye t- contact. It doesn't, it does not, you, you can, the days of reading your sermon, they're gone. We leave that for revival times in Jonathan Edwards. He could have read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and have people fall to their knees. But generally, revivals apart, the whole process of your communication with your audience is critical. It involves a degree of expressing your conviction. I don't mean you have to have a certain kind of passion. You're still you. You can't stop being you. And, you know, if you're white Anglo-Saxon and your emotional range isn't the same as someone from another culture, that's fine. I think the better language is actually conviction rather than passion. So I think of my dear brother Archie and I think of someone like Simon Manchester, two different very, you know, when Archie preaches, you can get emotional. You don't mind me saying that, Archie, you get emotional. It's beautiful. I envy you. I wish I could be more like it. Uh, Simon Manchester, you know, Anglo-Saxon kind of, you know, kind of reserved in manner. But I tell you, I, I know whenever I hear both of them, I know that they mean what they say. And, and uh, whereas others communicate like I'm thinking, I don't, it doesn't sound like you actually mean what you're talking about. And they're very sensitive to tone and intonations and whether, in fact, you're saying what you, you're, you believe what you say. And so you need to be aware that that becomes a very important issue when you're communicating across cultures. That body language stuff means a whole lot more to them than it perhaps might mean to maybe a certain uh, middle-class, uh, tertiary-trained um, uh, white Anglo-Saxon demographic. I remember I had one, uh, one... I'll close with this story. I had one... Student minister Stephen Sheed, who comes from a long line of smart guys and uh, and uh, and uh, great great family in Sydney, but Steve Sheed uh, ended up he's a missionary in Chile now. But he was a student minister, and it, it was in our Fairfield congregation. Where it was filled with Middle Easterners, right? And he preached, and his hands never moved. No one heard him because we. How can you talk without moving your hands? They all said to me, "How did he do it?" Right? It was so funny. Well, being a good future missionary and being wanting to make sure that he, he, the manner of his delivery wasn't a stumbling block, next week I gave him some feedback, passed on, and uh, next time he preached, the hand started moving. It was a bit awkward, but he was trying. But by the time he left, it was as natural as anything for him. And so your body language is part of how you communicate. And... Um, uh, and if it, you know, work out what, be, what is an ob- obstacle and work on it so that by all things, uh, we become all things to all men. So by all possible means, we may save some. Thank you for, grabbing, for giving me your attention, friends. Um, we've got time for some questions. I could keep talking, but I think it's enough now. Yes. Uh, you were saying earlier today, Ray, that you think uh, maybe even class distinctions are oh. bigger than ethnic. Yeah. Well, after language, once you crack language... Class disparity, even within the same people group. Look, I know in our evening service, a couple of really kind of raw working class guys. Oh, gee, I never feel more middle class. The way we do things, just the assumptions, the language, the humour. And I just know, 
In fact, I had a couple of preachers in the morning. It was the same thing with the islanders. And I, I, I just realized they were operating at a level that just had a different feel. I, I tend to sort of, because I'm basically part working class, part middle class anyway. That's what causes so many fights with my wife and I. But, but I realize it alien, you can just see they're alienated. They don't get some of the things there. Yeah. So, you, yeah, I've got no tips. Yeah. Oh, well, play it straight. The, you know, what everyone, playing plain, clear communication that's communicated with integrity and, you know, don't try to be smart, just try to be plain and straightforward, yeah. Can I tell you how you do that? Oh, please, thank you. Um, thank you, Rowan. Right. So you explain the principle, then you'll show me an example of right. how it works, and there you go, I just showed you in one sentence what it took me. Right, know, okay, yeah. So you do both. Yeah. Uh, yes. It doesn't isolate anyone. Right. Everyone is physically. Right, thank you, Ron. It's very helpful. Yeah, because I don't, you know, justification, I want them to know that. I want them to know propitiation. Who asked the question? Yeah, but because um, that's the mistake I think other people make because they're still reading the same Bible. We've got to teach the Word. I, I, what I'm trying to avoid is come up with a whole bunch of other words that aren't in the Bible that actually stop you from understanding, yeah. Oh, what a great man Peter Lynn is. Yeah, yeah. So he sold out and became Bishop, but anyway, I did encourage him, but you know... <laughs> Yeah, PowerPoint's helpful. Um, I tend not to use it as much, but I, um, I, I did the other day with, uh, with some apples and a pyramid. But I, I've not, I've not, I don't think I've used it that much. And I think it's helpful, you know. Um, I, still, I don't have an original idea in my head, so if there's something I, I'll tend to steal rather than come up with. Um, but I think that's commendable, you know. Um, and it's trying to... Oh, I'll tell you what I did. Um, we just did a commitment series and our 10-year goals and uh, we we're going through Philippians and the, bit, the, the money talk on how it's a fragrant offering and aroma pleasing to God, you know, that Paul describing the gifts of the Philippians. And uh, so I made sure my secretary fragranced all the, all the one-off gifts. So there was a perfume. We, we realised we couldn't use normal perfume because some people have an allergic reaction. So she, she kind of had it put in vanilla essence. In, 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 in a box, and it, and I said, smell, smell the, smell the one off. You know, I said, isn't it beautiful? I said, it's like that when you actually contribute a financial to the work of the gospel, it's like a pleasing aroma. So I got everyone to smell, and I had the bulletin in in vanilla essence, and you know, so I was that that way. But where did I get that from? I got it from I think my mentor from a few years ago who, who did the same thing. So yeah. Oh, sorry, I just sometimes use clips. So there's, uh, there's a clip I've been meaning to use um, on, you know, when the train in Western Australia, when the guy's foot got wedged and how they all came out and they... And I thought it was a lovely expression of working together as one to, to, for the sake of uh, saving one. And I, I'm going to use that maybe this Sunday. So I'll sometimes use clips. What structure? Have you got an idea that I don't work at? I'm, I'm breaking stream of consciousness. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. So, you know, like, we're generally taught sort of, you know... Linear, yeah. So, is that what you generally follow? Or, because, like, you listen to an African preacher sometimes and it'll just be very... Yeah, circular, yeah. I'm probably more Western at that point, but I'm... 
my, I, I don't think I'm actually very good at the way I structure my talks, I'll be honest with you. It's not my strong point. Um, uh, you're right. Uh, we had a Middle Eastern guy, and he would preach in a cycle. It was sort of like a spiral. <laughs> you know, we'd come back and go around, it was, and it was this circular... But he got there in the end. I don't know how he got there. It was, it was really, it was a different way of preaching. I, I am still West, I am a Westerner and I generally move in a linear format. And, uh, and it is, you know, generally the biblical way of approaching things. But, you know, I, I do try to preach a narrative style differently from an epistle, you know, and I let the genre try to shape my preaching in some way. Yeah, that, I would want to say that. But probably, I don't think I'm great at structure in a, you know, some people you think, well, I know exactly where he's going, and I've got the big idea. I try to thumb, you know, but I think I move in out of an explicit structure. Yeah, I think it's just be clear with each proposition and with your big idea is the thing I want to say. However, you want to do that, yeah. So that if they don't understand, this is a constant mantra, whether it's at our explaining Christianity or even I'll say it from the front. If you don't understand, whose fault is it? It's always me. It's always the speaker's fault. Because I want, especially in the western suburbs, education, reading has not been a high success thing for them. You know, I, I liken it to whenever I lift the hood of the engine, you know, I look at it, I already tell myself I'm not going to fix this. And that's how people, when they open a book, they've already told themselves, my experiences in the past have led me to believe that this is going to be an unsuccessful process. <laughs> and so I want to make them say, I want them to know that if they don't understand, it's actually the teachers, as long as they're awake. And so that puts the weight on the teacher to be clear. Clarity is a non-negotiable. So it is one of our values that we keep thumping. And I think people appreciate that. And Often they say, I think, why they're amazed is that they understood. Sometimes it's not even what they're understanding, it's that they understand, which when the church notoriously has invested so much mystery back into the gospel... And we live at a time when the, the mystery has been taken out of the gospel because it's been fulfilled. And the church has notoriously put it back in by its language, its style, its form. And uh, clarity is the issue, however you get there. Maybe the last question, I think, people, is that right? We have to finish now? No, no. Yeah. I'll try to repeat the question I was told to do. Oh, yeah. Um, your question is, apart from having the sermon translated for people whose lang- who, who, where English is not their heart language, um, apart from those other opportunities like plain English services and small groups where their heart language is... And the beauty of when you have a small group that follows the Sunday sermon... They get two bites of the cherry. There's another metaphor, you see. If, you're not, if you don't understand the metaphor, how it gets in there. and it can be, But it allows them to think about the Bible message uh, again more than once and helps them. Um, off the top of my head, having, I suppose if you gave your, your sermon and giving summaries of the talk and that it can get translated into that language, that would be a good thing to do. So they're seeing it, reflecting in it, hearing it, reading it. You know? Sometimes my pastor's corners during the week reflect what I'm about to preach on or what I have preached on. Yeah. And so they get to read it. Now, in an ideal world, having that translated into Tamil, Mandarin, would be helpful as well. We haven't done that. Like I said, I think we're babes in this. You know, all this talking up the front. You know, 
You've got to understand it's more talk than action, you know. We're just mar- marginally better than uh, other churches in it, that's all. Yeah. Any other a- answers to that question that uh, you may want to suggest? How we help people in the service understand, apart from translation, Yeah. Yeah. And I think it doesn't necessarily be translated because I think that it might be engaged uh, in the language. Yeah. Having it written down because sometimes you speak too quickly, some yeah. words they just go, how do you spell that? Yeah. I've heard that before. I think having the, I've seen a church do that before. You mean, is that in addition to having the sermon interpreted no, 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 instead of? Right. Right. Because people are at different stages, are they? There's a certain point when they listen with both and then they take one side off and they want to hear you preach and hear the interpreter. Uh, you know what I mean? It, there's there's a, an evolving process that happens for the listener and probably that's the next stage after that where I want a backup manuscript while he's speaking so I get to reread because you can't... You, you know, it's, it, preaching is for the ear, not the eye, and you can't stop and go back uh, unless it's a recorded sermon. Yeah, it's a Yeah, it's a literate culture. Very good. That's an excellent point. I see. So you're saying have the main point on the screen? More than just the heading, but like a two or three sentences. I see, right. Right. Propositions. Yeah. And then, now you've introduced the whole issue of... Um, you know, sometimes people want me to speak slower and, and all of a sudden I can then frustrate the majority of the congregation. You're, you're juggling a lot of balls. It becomes a very delicate issue. Um, and, uh, and so... That one really won't bother anyone, I don't think. But, but sometimes there is a competing value that you're trying to care for different needs of the listener. Uh, and I need to throw that in as well. And sometimes you've got to make a call uh, and do what you can to actually offset that. But thank you, that's very helpful. Uh, I'm, I was going to say, so, yeah. In fact, we just on that we had an Explaining Christianity group happening in our uh, women's group. And there was like four languages being interpreted and like a Mandarin speaker was hearing it from an English speaker who then translated into Cantonese. The Cantonese then knew a bit of Korean and said something to the Korean. And then there was an Aussie, this lovely 50-year-old Aussie, and, and then I'm feeling sorry for her. The, she said, oh, no, I like it really nice and slow. So, so it was like... Duh, 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 duh. And it gave her time to process it. So, but that's not for everyone. And you, it's horses for courses. Thank you so much. Let me close in prayer. Father in heaven, I thank you for my brothers and sisters, Lord. Uh, we do want to preach faithfully, clearly. We want the name of Jesus honoured. We want, we want all of our cultures to surrender to you. We want to celebrate the good things that, are, that make us human, that reflect your common grace. Uh, we want to um, uh, redeem those elements which are good in and of themselves but have been corrupted. And Father, of those aspects of our culture that are just simply thoroughly offensive and express the works of the evil one. We want them named for what they are and dealt with uh, under your grace, uh, by your spirit, 
and under your Lordship. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.